Amen. Well, good morning. I cannot believe it is July. July is upon us. I hope you had a great weekend celebrating our independence and the good gifts God has given us here. Um, from Facebook, I understand quite a few of us are on vacation. I think most of them sit over there. Um, but they're, but uh, a bunch of holes, folks are traveling. But uh, summer is slipping away. This summer I've decided to be talking a little bit about the seven deadly sins. Uh, good summer fodder for us to chew on while we're in and out of town, to slide into greed or you know, envy or you know, pride or sloth. You know, the seven deadly sins are part of Christian moral theology. They're not listed any particular place in the Bible, but they're all listed in the Bible in the various lists. And somewhere in the fourth century, even it began, and through the Middle Ages, theologians have, um, have brought them together as, as particularly insidious heads of sins and say that all the other sins that we struggle with could be put under one of those seven categories of pride and envy and sloth and gluttony and greed and lust and so on, that, they, that, that, that list. And so we're, we're kind of tucking into different ones this summer, and this week we are touching on the green-eyed monster, right? Envy, or uh, jealousy, which is a species of envy, I believe. We're in Proverbs 14, verse 30. Just a single verse this morning. Single verse with three points coming out of it. Proverbs can be that way. A lot of them come to us in single verses. And here it is then. Hear the word of God in a sentence. He says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come this morning, we have gathered as your people to hear from you. We want to know your word. We want to have you speak into our lives. We want to understand and experience conviction and the outflowing of your spirit and the renewal of life. And we want health and peace and grace and to be full of the good things. So Father, come near. In these moments as we sit under your word, would you have your way with us and work within us and not only give us information, but bring about real life and heart transformation. For we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at this this proverb, we see that standing between the tranquil heart that gives life to the flesh, that is to the to the body, to the to the whole life. So between this tranquil heart that gives light to the flesh and bones that rot, stand that little word, envy. Right? In between those two Two things, life-giving heart and rotting bones, envy, the green-eyed monster, and I'm just going to subsume jealousy underneath it and just say jealousy is one kind of envy that, that infects our relationships, that envy is a, is a bigger uh, word, a bigger category, and that's just one kind of it. Now, we don't talk a lot about envy. It's interesting on the whole list of what we would consider in moral historical theology to be the seven deadly sins, we don't talk about most of them very much. I think pride gets play and lust gets play, but we don't talk a lot about envy. I don't know that in my life I've even heard a sermon on envy. Um, We don't talk a lot about sloth. We don't talk a lot about gluttony. We don't talk a lot about those things. So interestingly that these make the list that envy 
is something, it's another one that I don't know that I've, I've rarely admitted or that I've really heard other people confess, you know, that I'm dealing with, with this one. It's one of those things, I don't know, it's, it's very personal, it's very hidden, it kind of rides under the surface. And yet our spiritual counselors through the ages warned us about its seriousness and the dangers of it to the soul. The scripture warns us, you know, the tranquil heart gives life, but envy rots the bones. I read this week that there's a word for envy in every known language on the planet. Now, I didn't search it out and, and check their sources or anything like that, but I tell you I read it. They said there is a word for envy in every language that exists, it is known. In other words, it is a pervasive human trait. This isn't something that just you deal with or even just I deal with, but it's part of the human problem. I would say all seven of them are things that all of us struggle with. And so it is a work of grace that we can put our fingers on them and understand them so that we might find freedom from them. They are blind spots as often or not. And the way that we fix a blind spot or avoid the danger of a blind spot is by dragging it out into the light so we can see the thing, name the thing, and fight the thing. The truth is we all struggle with all of the deadly sins. And so we must fight the temptation to envy. And so I want to talk about just the three parts of this, what I would consider the three parts of this. I want to talk about the bones that rot. I want to talk about the envy and what it is. And then I want to talk about the tranquil the tranquil heart that gives life to the body. And we'll end, end there. But, you know, with the bones that rot. Os Guinness, it's here in your bulletin under the first point in the outline. Os Guinness says that traditionally envy was regarded as the second worst and second most prevalent of the seven deadly sins. Like pride, it is a sin of the spirit, not of the flesh, and thus it is a cold and highly respectable sin rides underneath the surface, in contrast to some of those more warm and openly disreputable sins of the flesh that seem to be more obvious to our culture and to us and to those who are around us. So he's telling us it's one of the worst and most prevalent sins. It's a sin of the Spirit. The Bible addresses it with surprising frequency. So if you go, I don't know if you have software, I have Bible software, every pastor has software now, but you should have Bible software, you can go online Bible and search envy, and just follow it, <laughs> you know, and then if you're not following the actual word, you know, and finding the places, there are so many other places where we see it, even if the word is not prevalent. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 29, if you know what Roman, uh, familiar with Romans 1, Romans 1 to 3 is Paul's bringing the indictment and, uh, against the world because of sin. And in Romans 1, he talks about us suppressing the truth and, and exchanging the glory of God for a lie and worshiping created things and, and idolatrous things rather than God. And then he, then he goes into this, this list talking about the effects of that in the lives of, of, of people. And he says this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit. And so you get this list. They're full of all manner of unrighteousness and evil. And he starts listing some stuff. And right there early in the list, notice envy is listed right before murder. Right? And this is one of those things that for us we wrestle with, I think, is that we, we don't have the same sense of the seriousness of sin that God seems to have. 
And we tend to rank them and to think, you know, that, you know, we put these over here as the bad sins, and as long as I don't do those, I'm doing pretty good. And some of these more insidious heart attitude, you know, kind of sins that, that, that you know, they're not so bad. They don't, you know, some of us would think, well, nobody, I don't, it doesn't hurt anybody, I guess, or, you know, I may not even see it. It's in the blind spots, and there it is, envy and then murder. Galatians chapter 5 is another key passage on Christian sanctification, right? It's a great passage on flesh and spirit, and it says that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against or, or strains against the flesh, and, there's this, and they are war within us, and it speaks of this battle in, in the sanctification. It says if we walk by the spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts or the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on to outline a list of the works of the flesh, Versus the fruit of the Spirit, right? And because the works of the flesh war against, you know, the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the lives of the people. Most of us can list the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. You know, most of us as kids, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You know, we can go down that list, but most of us aren't as familiar with the works of the flesh, Galatians 5 there in your bulletin under just part of the list is this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, those are those warmer, more obvious sins, as he talked about. All right, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, and the list goes on. But it makes the list, it consistently makes the list, it consistently is touched on. Old and New Testament, the Proverbs would speak to it, the, the tranquil life versus a, a rot in the bones, you know, in the, in the deep places. Titus says in Titus chapter 3, 3, or Paul writing to Titus, sorry, in Titus the book says, uh, Paul writes, we ourselves were once foolish, you know, this is in our lost estate. This is apart from Christ, apart from his spirit, apart from salvation and that work in his lives. You know, we, you know, we used to be over there. We used to be foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. And the list goes on. Right? Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Whiling away our days in malice envy. So Romans says it's unrighteous and evil in that list. Galatians says it's a work of the flesh that is at war with the life of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Titus says it's a form of slavery that we spend our days in. Envy takes root in the heart and it robs us of joy and it robs us of contentment, of love and concern. It makes war on the life of the Spirit. It sucks away our spiritual strength. It rots our bones. Right? So that's what the proverb tells us, and that's what all the Scripture concurs. Envy rots our bones. It's, it's, it's a form of slavery. It is not healthy. And so, but what is this envy that is so dangerous, that is so insidious, that is that often that blind spot that we can't see, you know? And the only way to see it is you've got to do a head check. Right? That's what they, they teach you. You've got to do a head check. And so the scripture gives us this, you know, do a head check on where we are. And that's what we're going to do. What is this envy that we're talking about that, that, that is so unhealthy to the inner life of our souls, you know, so unhealthy to our thought life and our emotional life that it, that it is a rotting influence inside of us? 
We need to be able to recognize it so that we can fight it. Because we fight for joy, right? We fight for contentment, these things that the Scripture promises to us and offers to us. But it's so often robbed from us by things like envy, which rot our bones, right? It creeps in and gets hold and, and robs us of the good gifts that God has for us. So we need to be able to fight it. Piper dis- defined it this way. I did a bunch of reading and looked all around. I didn't find anything better. I really like the way he describes it. It's there in your bulletin under the second point. What is envy? Piper says, envy is a mingling of a desire for something, right, with resentment, or I would just put in there discontentment, that another is enjoying it, and you're not. Right? So you can actually just be discontent that you see other people are enjoying something that you're not, downright to a resentment, which is a more positive, offensive kind of a thing that they are enjoying things that you're not, right? He says things aren't going so well for you, but things seem to be going well for them, and it just gnaws away, right? And then the the sentence, why does it go so well for that person when it doesn't go so well for me? See, that that is envy in a nutshell, it's that constant feeling. Why does it go so well for that person? You know, in their job situation or in their family or with their children or, you know, with their vacation, you know, or their kids seem to be having so much fun and, and their kids are in so many activities and their marriage seems to be so, now, you know, why does it go so well for them and it not go so, for, so well for me? And it's that, and it creates a discontentment. Something not, it gnaws at us, right? It's not, I'm not happy with that situation. I, I see what is out there, and I'm unhappy about it. it. It gnaws away at me, and it can go everywhere from just gnawing away at me to creating actual resentment. In one case, I'm just unhappy and discontent. My joy is sucked away, and another is I'm positively resentful of your good fortune. Dorothy Sayer says, Envy begins by asking plausibly, why should I not enjoy what others enjoy? But it ends by demanding, why should others enjoy what I may not? And that's where it turns offensive, positive, and it goes out. Tearing each other down. This is where we tear each other down to make each other, to make ourselves feel better. You know, if they do seem to be in some way, you know, no, we're not going to have that. You know, we tear each other down to make, each, to make ourselves feel better is one of the, the, the ways in, in the workplace we can see it. Sabotaging a co-worker. You know, if I can't have it, or if I'm the one who deserves it, or why when that person, my skill set is better, I've been here longer, or I'm a nicer person, or I'm a better, you know, or whatever it is. And so not only is it why do they get what I don't get, but it can positively turn into, nah-uh. And we actually sabotage. You know, we actually do those things, resentful things. Right, so it begins with, and, and see, this is it. We look at the world and we say, in our culture, they've to, you know, there's this whole sense of entitlement out there. You know, when we speak in terms of social service and governmental, you know, in the sense of entitlement. But, but envy, you know, as we go home and look in the mirror, envy begins with a sense of entitlement. Why not me? Why them? Why do they get that? Why do they get a good marriage or health or strength? Why do they get that opportunity, that vacation, that house, that, you know, why them and not me? 
So the gnawing heart of envy is this question. Why not me? Why not me? Things are not going as well for me as for others. I don't have as much, and it just gnaws. Whether it's material things, it could be attention. We see it in children. One child sees another child getting attention. Why not me? And they're in there, right? I will take the attention that I want. Like we can vie. You can see that in the workplace, though. You can see it in families. You can see it in couples. You can see it in places, material things, attention, the talents, people's fun, less sickness, better marriages, travel. Envy is a disease of comparison. Right, a disease of comparison. Stirred up by gazing at other people's lives. Right? By looking over the fence. But we live in a culture of envy, don't we? I mean, the whole advertising industry is built on it. It, is, it, it thrives on it. The whole advertising thing is to show you other people enjoying things that you don't have. And giving you the message, the message is... Why not you? You deserve it. In fact, sometimes they come right out and say, you deserve it. Get the thing you deserve. Why not you? And if you deserve it and you don't have it, and it creates, right, it creates a desire in a sense of why not me? Other people are enjoying a fine automobile like that. Other people are enjoying a fine, you know, whatever. Other people are in, you know, and they show them they're so happy. Right? They're having so much fun. Creates this desire. The message is, why not you? Facebook, probably worse than the advertising industry in our culture. It is amazing. I'm not saying Facebook is evil in itself. You know, there's, Facebook has very beneficial things. I learn more on Facebook about what's going on in people's lives than anywhere else. Truly. Not because I'm on there, but because I have spies and they inform me of the things... <laughs> They tell me what you're doing. They tell me where you are. You know, they tell me, you know, when there are things I should go look at. And I'll go look at your pictures and see, you know, exactly what's going on. Facebook is this thing. It's, but it feeds the flames of envy. Now, if you know this, I mean, you can be careful perhaps and guard your heart and moderate your use. But you need to understand that a good part of it, feeding the flames, right? We spend hours gazing into other people's lives. We see what they're doing, right? The activities that their kids are involved in. My kids, you know, aren't involved in that many things. My kids also need to be involved in that, that, and that. Or I see their education, or I see the fun that they're having, or I see what they're eating, right? I see what they're eating. I see, you know, their vacation. I get to see everybody's vacation. It used to be the day you'd have to come over, and I might, you know, you might show your vacation pictures and pass them. You know, you got trapped in the living room. But now, now I can see all of your vacation pictures. And you know what? I'm jealous, <clears throat> right? We see, we gaze into each other's lives and we see right down to... And everybody's showing the highlights though, right? Then we put out... I mean, there, every now and then people put out the... You know, but largely it's the... We're having so much fun and our, our marriage is so great and our kids are most awesome and, and here are our pictures and see where we are and here's the view that we have and here's the... You know, and that's what Facebook is and we look at it. Why not me? <laughs> Why, why are my, my kids don't seem half, you know, you know, my, my, we, we, with this whole comparison thing. See how they praise their spouses and how they love each other and how they, the activities are involved in. And it fascinates me. Because one of the things that creates envy in us is how many likes somebody else gets. 
Right? Because you post, and then you look at their post. You're not only looking at the post, you look to see how many people liked it. And the people who didn't get very many likes, you don't envy them. But the people who got 237 likes, good gracious. You know, they, people love them. People are loving their life. Everybody's looking at their life. They must be something. They must have an, you know, I'm going to go look at their pictures, you know, and gaze into their children's lives and see what's going on. You know, how many likes they got? Or I post something, I didn't get very many likes. Only three people liked it. It must have been the hour. It must have been everybody was off doing something else at that time because otherwise they would have liked it. We could actually get depressed. Looking at Facebook, we come away depressed. Why not me? Why do they get all the breaks? Why are they having all the fun? We're having some of that fun. We're going to get it. It's interesting. It's it's, It's this disease of comparison and entitlement. Why not me? Why not us? Why do they get it all? And it makes us do funny things then. And we can make us do funny things. It can wreak havoc in our lives because it's a motivator. It becomes one of those things as it gnaws away. You know, it's, it, it disrupts the emotional life. And it makes us do funny things when we envy each other. Sometimes we want to be the envy of others. So we want to post stuff that gets lots of likes because we are the envy of the whole Facebook world. You know, when we have that many. But we do that in the world. There's a sense in which we want the, the envy of others. We want people to... To look in, but we also go after it. The envy moves us. It's a strong motivator because it steals our joy and it nurtures depression and it destroys contentment. And so we think the answer is to take what God has not given. To go take and to try to create and to imitate and to get our slice of the pie. We spend money that we don't have. We live above our means. We create debt, right? Why? Why not me? Well, why not you? Might be because you don't have the means, right? I, you know, the way that we have lived our lives, you know, that that thing, why not us? Well, because we don't have any money, right? You know, that thing, but oh, well, there's a solve, you know, we can solve that. And so so envy creates debt and and it robs us of margin. Not only do we not have extra money to tithe and to be generous and to give, you know, that that means spending less money than we make to create margins so that we can be generous and and be tithers and be invested that way. We have to, but not only that, it not only eats our margin, but it it puts us in debt. We'll we'll positively go into debt to, to have that vacation that everybody else seems to be having. Not because it's within our means, but because... Why not me? <laughs> Why not me? I'm going to buy that boat that I always wanted. You know, Why not me? You know, I was talking to my son about some people that he knows, you know, and there's this, there's this thing that they can only afford this much and they live on this salary, and it says, but they're, sort of their whole posture toward life is why not me? And so the, everything they own is on, is, on in, is on debt. They own a jet ski and they own a boat, you know, and they own, you know, and they have a list and they take the vacation and they do that, but they're, they have a debt thing that's just out here. Because why not me? Why not me? Everybody else has them. If I can't afford them, I can still have them. Too much car, too much house, too much updating, too much stuff. Too, no, no time because there are too many activities. Why not us? Why not us? Spend what I don't have. Give what I don't have. It can damage marriages because money is the number one reason cited in divorces. And when you have no margin and you have debt, it creates stress. And it's one of the large killers 
that is out there. Now we are overlapping with greed. You know, greed is coming up. You know, it's a Sunday to look forward to. Come back and we'll talk greed. We'll take that there. We're overlapping with greed in that whole thing. But it can be. It's the number one reason. It stresses us out. You know, why not me? And so we, 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 we overreach. And when we overreach, we create stress. Right? And, and then that doesn't go away. You know, for that moment of fun in the sun, I've got now months of stress and difficulty because, because why not me? But ultimately, here's the thing. Envy is a rebellion against a sovereign God. It's that sneaking sense that God is holding out on us. That God is holding out on me. He's giving it to you. He's giving it to you. You're enjoying it. But for whatever reason, He's holding out on me. And so I will take what God has not given. I will reach for it. And that's, again, we overlap into greed, but it's this rebellion, this sneaking sense that we deserve more, we deserve better than God is giving to us. And the sense we get when we compare, when we look around, see what the Joneses are doing. See, what everybody else is, you know, that whole keeping up with the Joneses. And most of us, we know that phrase. You know, no, we don't. But most of us would say, I don't try to keep up with the Joneses. But it's insidious. It is. It's that root. It's that gnawing sense that, why not me? Right? It's that gnawing sense of God's holding out on me. There's that gnawing sense. I deserve more. I deserve better. I, I want more for my kids. I want more for... And so it's that gnawing sense. And we do, then. We do seek to keep up with our culture, with people that are just in a better position, a different position than we are. They're not, we're not in the same place in life. So this is envy. The green-eyed monster that rots our bones, that makes all the lists that the Scripture warns us about and, and our moral theologians and our fathers and brothers in the faith have warned us about. Because as you go back to our proverb, a tranquil heart gives life to the body, that is to the whole life. It's an inward, outward thing, right? A tranquil heart, a tranquil center, a center of peace, contentment, trust, right? At the center, gives life to the whole body. But envy makes the bones, the center, rot. We've talked about the rotting bones and the envy, and let's talk about then the tranquil heart. See, in other words, it is just a way of talking that health is at the center. It flows out. You know, and the Bible says this all the time, right? Jesus comes after the heart. Jesus wants our hearts, right? He comes after the heart again and again. Make the heart right. You know, guard the heart because it is the wellspring of life. And if the, if the spring is fouled, then what flows from it will be, you know, tainted. You know, and he says to so clean the spring, protect the heart, the wellspring, and it will protect the downstream and what comes out of it in life. And Jesus comes after the heart. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but you fail to clean the inside of the cup, the heart, the bones, right? The the inside out of which life comes. And there's either health in the inside or there's rot on the inside. And Jesus says, you've whitewashed the outside of the tomb, but inside's full of dead men's bones, rot. (laughs) You know, and whitewashing the outside doesn't do a thing. He says, you've got to go after the heart. And so this is an issue that when God drags it out of the blind spot, out into the light and into the center, when we begin to see You know what? I'm tempted by this all the time. 
I'm tempted by this. You know, those, those things. I see what everybody does. You know, it's one of the reasons I'm only on Facebook once in a while, aside from the, that it takes too much time, is that, I don't know, is this gazing into other people's lives that creates in, in me at some level some discontentment. And the antidote to envy, then, is a tranquil heart. The tranquil heart. Peace at the center. Peace at the core. So where do we get that? You know, and the first thing for me is when we start talking about these things, the danger is simply to say, I'm not going to envy anymore then. You know, I see it. It's like so many of our sins where we just decide to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. All right, tomorrow, I'm not going to do that anymore. Guess what? If you don't do it tomorrow, the day after, you'll forget that you even made that decision, and you will do it. And it will, it creeps, you know, it's that thing. We don't just decide. We have to fight it. Very deliberately, the scripture calls us, you know, we have to, to fight it and to, and to create the kind of life that combats it. Not just like a one and done, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore, but, but culting a, a life that comes out of the God's word. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the, what I need is faith, faith that God is not holding out on me, faith that God is good, faith that God is working all things together for my good, faith that God is my rock and my fortress and my strong tower, that I can run to him in all of these moments, my faith that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me and he never abandons me and that nothing will separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and all of the promises and all of the truths that create peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, run to Jesus, run to God, know his word and be in his presence and talk to him about it. And peace is something that is cultivated in a relationship with God. It's not something that's imparted in five minutes. Oh, you wanted that? There it is. You know, go about your business. You know, or envy that something or any sin, something, oh, I don't want to do that anymore, you know, done and walk away. Neither of them are like that. They're cultivated. We fight sin and we cultivate a heart for God. It is entrenched and enriched by his word and believes, right? And believes those things that set our hearts free. Jesus has come to me. All who are weary, if you are weary of trying to keep up, weary of, of, of living beyond, you know, weary of, you know, the whole game, he says, come to me if you're weary of it all and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. I will set you free from your slaveries, free from your masters. You know, and I would think each of these, each of these seven deadly sins is a, is a form of idolatry, a form of mastery. And Jesus says you can only serve one master. And you can't serve this master and him. And he will set us free. The truth will set us free. His word will set us free. Take my yoke upon you. It will give you life and health, and peace, and rest for your souls. You know, you remember the story of Peter? Uh, you know, Peter is, is the guy we love to make fun of because he's more like us than we like to admit. And Peter has all these things. But, you know, Peter, at the very end, when Jesus is arrested, and, Jesus, and Peter denies Jesus three times, right? Just outright, don't know the guy, don't know what you're talking about, don't associate me with him. And, you know, then, then the cock crows and he weeps and he goes out and he's bitter and he goes back to fishing and he's like done with the whole thing. And Jesus comes and finds him on the beach and calls him back and they have a little lunch together and a little conversation. Do you love me, Peter? You do? Do you love me? I mean, do you really love me? Are you going to, you know, and he, he restores Peter to himself. 
And then it says that Jesus talked to him about what kind of death he would die to glorify God. Now that's an interesting conversation. You get restored and then you get told basically he would be a martyr. Jesus prepares him for this difficult life circumstance. The day would come upon that he would be called upon to give himself, quite literally give his life for the cause, for Christ. And then Jesus says to him, follow me. All right, and that's his call to you. That's his call as we seek an antidote to all these things. Follow me. Right, because it's interesting in that moment as Jesus says, follow me. It, the passage tells us Peter turned and he saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? Isn't it, don't you sometimes think that God loves other disciples more than you? You know, obviously from the stuff they have or, you know, the life they get to live or the, you know, whatever it is. But here's one that, I mean, it's, it's built right in there. That it is, couldn't there be any more sort of fodder for envy than that, the disciple that Jesus loved? Why not me? Right? Why not me? I want to be that guy. But here's Peter getting restored, Peter who failed, Peter restored, Peter who, who's been told the kind of sacrifice he's going to make for Christ, and he turns and he says he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he asks Jesus this, Lord, what about this man? You just told me I'm going to die a martyr's death. What about John? What about him? What about your favorite disciple? What about the beloved John? And Jesus asked him this question. And it's the question that I think every single time we have these feelings, every single time as we did, we can battle it with this question that Jesus asks Peter on the beach. He says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, i.e. that he doesn't die a martyr's death? Like, if that's my will for him, you die young, early, violently? Like, this is, this is what it means for you to follow me? This is my plan for you as your Lord, as your King, as your Sovereign, as the one who is Lord and Master of all these things, and as you follow me, Peter, this is the calling? This is a high calling. Peter, Paul says, you know, that, that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. But he says, what is it to you? He says, Jesus said to him, what if it is his my will that he remain until I come? What is that to you? What is that to you? In other words, none of your business, Peter. Right? None of your business. And then he says to him again, follow me. Right? If if it is my will that he should remain until I come, What is that to you? If it is my will that they should have whatever it is anybody else has or does. In other words, each of us has our own journey. Each of us has our own calling. Each of us have our own place and and station in life. Each of us have, you know, a certain amount that God has given us and not given us. A certain amount. I see some folks who suffer more than others. I look into some lives and I'm just like, they have had more than their fair share of suffering. Why not me? And it can go in reverse, but there's that thing that God calls some people. You know, each of us has our own, and our job, our job, wherever we are, whatever we are given, whether we're Peter or whether we're John, you know, whether, whatever it is, is to follow me, Jesus says. Follow, what is that to you, Peter? <laughs> Why would you even ask me that question? You need to fix your eyes on me. Follow me. 
secure friend be is to follow Jesus on his own terms, to live without comparing ourselves with others, right? To compare ourselves only with Christ, to hear his word and to hear his call and to follow what he is saying to me, be faithful with what he's given me. Spend less time gazing into other people's lives and cultivating, nurturing that sense of why not me? I turn commercials off. I even like refuse to watch them. You know, it is an offense to my soul at times. You know, just you know, there is this in trying to disengage from those things which niggle at the soul, gnaw, gnaw at the bones. We compare ourselves only with Jesus. We follow the path he gives us. We raise our children in a way that seems right for our family, that brings honor and glory to him as we live unto him without comparing what everybody else is doing and saying and arguing. Not to feel righteous as I look side to side, which is sometimes what we'll do is gaze into other life and feel really good about ourselves. Feel righteous when compared to other folks and we see what they're up to or doing. And Jesus says, don't compare yourselves. Compare your righteousness to me. That puts us in a different place, doesn't it? It brings us to the place of humility. To always live in light of Christ and his honor and his glory and who he is and his righteousness. And it puts us where we need to be. Jesus says, don't follow the Joneses, don't follow the culture, don't follow what you see on Facebook. Follow me, stop gawking. You know, it's like spiritual rubbernecking. That's what I was thinking about it. Sometimes I feel like that's what we, you know, it's that spiritual rubbernecking into each other's lives where life seems to slow down. You know, sometimes I'm just like, what's going on up there? It must be an accident in our lane. And it's not, it's like five lanes over across a divided highway, you know, there's an inning, but everybody's, you know, slow almost to a stop so that we can, so that we can, and the whole thing backs up. The, the, my side, there's no accident. There's no reason for it. But I believe that's what it is, rubbernecking. It just stalls out. So we said spiritual growth, you know, if you're not pressing forward, you're probably just like swimming upstream. You're probably losing ground. You know, you're probably being swept back. And you're, you need to stop rubbernecking. Hebrews 12 tells us, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Right? So the image, again, of that runner who is running that race, you know, not looking at the other runners. And you'll see that in a race. If a runner looks at another runner, he's going to lose a little bit of stride. It could be the difference between winning and losing. If you take your eyes off the line, off the prize, and giving your all to look at other runners it will slow you down. It's just mechanics. It's physics or something. I don't know, but it does. It slows you down. Looking at each other to see what the other guy's doing, to see where the other guy is, to see if I'm winning, to see if I'm... Jesus says, don't. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Live for Christ. Honor Him. And it will set you free. Free. Fight for the tranquil heart. Isaiah 26.3, and I'll close with this. It's there in your bulletin. Isaiah 26.3, he says, You, O God, will keep in perfect peace the tranquil heart that you want, that I want. Is there a human being that doesn't want it? You will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Follow me. 
You will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That you're not holding out. That you are good. And what I have in my life is all gift. And it's enough. Right? It's enough because God has given it to us. Right? And without comparing, we have enough. And why do we always compare up anyway? Why don't we compare down? Let's compare to rural Africa. You'll always be content. You'll always be grateful. Let's compare to the sick and the lame. Let's, let's compare to those who don't have if we're going to do. And Jesus says, don't do any of that. Because one puffs up and one tears down and depresses. And Jesus says, fix your eyes on me. He will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on me because he trusts me that it is enough. He is a good God. He is gracious. He is generous. Let's stop rubbernecking. Because only then will we stop feeling cheated and start being satisfied with an all-sufficient Savior and a good and gracious provider who loves us perfectly. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for a morning when we can be still and remember that you are God, that you are the Lord of all of these things and that you hold us in your hands, that you are good, you are always good. Help us to fix our eyes on you, to compare ourselves to no one but you, to follow no one but you, to seek to honor no one but you, to seek to please no one, not even ourselves, but you. Capture our hearts and our minds and set us free. Give rest to our souls. We ask, we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we conclude our service, singing I Surrender All, and at some level that is what we're talking about. I surrender all. He is the Lord, and He is good.